Hello and welcome back to part two of the property podcast series on pocket money. Uh, last week, Sally, we spoke to Michael Yardney about first home buyer mistakes. And this week, we're tackling what not to do, but from a property investment angle. You've invested in property before, right, Mark? So surely, you know, there were a lot of experiences that you had that I'm sure you wish you knew about beforehand, right? Definitely. And um, I dare say my shoddy investment strategy is going to come <laughs> under fire from Michael in the, in the preceding uh, interview, but we'll, we'll see. So from rushing the decision-making process to, I guess, forking out more than you need to, these are some of the mistakes that you should avoid making if you're about to invest in property. That's right. Yeah, we're going to cover it all. Welcome back, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us again. My pleasure. So last time we were talking about first home buyer mistakes, but today we're going to be talking about property investor mistakes. So probably a little bit of overlap there, but definitely some new tips to pick up. Definitely, because in Australia, there are 2 million property investors and most Australians want to buy a home first and then buy an investment property. But as we've discussed, some people do it the other way around. They rent where they can afford to live but can't afford to buy and buy an investment property first. And most people buy an investment property to gain a form of financial independence in the future. But it's important to educate yourself first and get it right because most property investors fail. Interestingly, it's been shown that 50% of people who buy an investment property sell up in the first five years. They've actually got it wrong. And when they sell up, they're actually usually doing it at a loss as well. So they're paying a huge learning fee to the market uh, and, and somebody else, the, the developer who sold them the dud property or or the vendor who's uh, made a bit of a killing because the investor has overpaid, they're at the other end and they're making some money. So let's talk about how not to pay those learning fees to the market. So let's start with number one, making hasty decisions. How long should you spend doing your research before buying a property? Well, let me give a little disclaimer up front. I think you should actually be doing this as part of a team, not yourself. So you should be having a buyer's agent to help you protect you and level the playing field. But a lot of people want to do it themselves. So, okay, how many properties do you need to see? The thing is, most people buy their first investment close to where they live, close to where they want a holiday, if you're older, close to where they want to retire, because they think they know the area. Knowing the local neighborhood, searching for a property is not the same as researching and understanding the fundamentals, the investment fundamentals of the location, such as supply and demand, infrastructure that's going to increase different zonings, the demographics of the area. Are there lots of owner-occupiers or are there more tenants? So you really need to do the homework and research. And it's often said you've actually got to visit 100 properties, see what sells, see what they sell for, understand what doesn't sell. So that's one of the big learning fees. Oops, I bought the wrong property because I it felt right. The thing is, when you start off as a beginning investor, you actually don't have the perspective of what feels right. So you're actually buying with uh, emotion and it sometimes takes a while to realize it's a dud. Yeah, especially if you live in Sydney, like FOMO is just such a big thing <laughs> and it's so easy to get swept up in the whole like, oh, I need to buy now, like I need to buy in the next couple of months because, you know, property prices are going to rise and, and yeah, so it's easy to get swept up in all of that. 
Very much so. Of course, it's normal. We're human. And that's, again, why you need somebody to balance things out. Now, of course, there's the other side of it as well, Mark. There are some people who are so analytical that they have analysis paralysis and they're waiting for everything to be perfect for the time to be perfect for interest rates to be perfect for the market to be perfect and the answer is it never is so they keep missing out so there's two groups of people some who get in too early some who get in too late yeah it seems like quite a balancing act to figure out when is the right time so yeah i guess that's when getting the help from a professional can can really give you that step up sally do you want to know when the right time is Yes, tell me, please. 20 years ago. <laughs> well. 14 years ago when I bought my first property for $18,000. And as it was an investment, I was still living at home with my parents and I got $12 a week rent. And I was excited. Wow. <laughs> but, wow. But, but having said that, the second best time is now because timing is not that important. Because even if you get it five, ten thousand, twenty thousand 20000 cheaper, in 10 years' time, well-located properties in our capital cities double every 10 years. We've just done some research at Metropole a couple of weeks ago, going back 40 years, all the statistics, and Sydney grew at about 7.4% on average over the last 40 years. Melbourne, 7.9%. Brisbane, 7.3% on average capital growth. If a property grows at 7% per annum, it doubles in 10 years. Uh, the other states had slightly lower capital growth, but in the high 6%. So if you buy good property, it'll double. But that means that if you buy it for 10000 less or a bit more today, it's not going to make much difference. It's the capital growth. And as an investor, you don't pay tax on that increased value of your property. And as an investor, when you eventually retire, you shouldn't sell your properties, by the way, when you eventually retire, most of the money you're going to have isn't going to be the rent you've earned, the money you've saved, the tax you've saved. It's actually going to be the tax-free appreciation, capital growth of your property. So that's another big mistake people make. It's the, oops, I got no capital growth uh, mistake because they've paid too much up front or bought the sort of property that isn't going to go up in value. And one of those groups of properties is those large apartment complexes that were built more for investors rather than owner-occupiers, where at the moment when they're settling, the valuation is coming in below contract price, but it's because there are so many of them and because there isn't a good secondary market for them that a lot of those buildings have no capital growth, no increase in value and no increase in rent for up to a decade. And that hurts. I can see the Opal Towers from my from where I actually live. So that's a good reminder, a daily reminder. Let's go on to the next point, which is thinking like an owner. So um, this can probably be a bit of a hard one to overcome. So what are your tips for that? Interestingly, as an investor, I do think you've got to understand what owners want, but not what you want. Let me explain. I think an investment-grade property is one that appeals to owner-occupiers because it's not one that's built for investors. All those high-rise towers we've talked about were basically built for investors, many of them for overseas investors, and uh, they're not the sort of people who are going to keep pushing up the value of those properties, especially since a lot of the foreign investors have gone. So I like the sort of property that has strong owner-occupier appeal because it's people who are owner-occupiers are going to buy similar properties, not that I want to sell my properties, and push up the values. But that's not necessarily how for many beginning investors think. So it's not that I would love it, I would want to live in it, I could live in it. It's not my personal tastes. Instead, 
try and walk in the shoes of the typical local buyer who would buy similar properties in the area. And of course, you've got to understand what tenants want as well. So it's not what appeals to you at your age and your stage of life. I can imagine that being a really difficult one to overcome. And it's a good thing to think about before you are in the moment, because, you know, like we were talking about in the previous episode, when you're doing your research and you're buying based on your emotions, you know, you'd be thinking, well, I'm spending my money on this. So, you know, if I want a pool, this should have a pool. But yeah, you need to think about, yeah, what the tenants want and what other owners would want rather than maybe your own preferences, which I think is a really good tip. Because it's an investment, it's numbers and figures. Let me maybe say that most properties are not investment grade. So anyone can live anywhere and any property can become an investment property. You kick out the owner, you put a tenant in and it's an investment property, but it's not investment grade. As I said earlier on, a lot of investors sell up, but the other statistic shows that of the 20 million property investors in Australia, the majority, around 90%, never get past their second investment property, which means they never get the financial freedom they are looking for. In all of Australia, the tax office statistics show that there's just over 20,000 investors who own six or more properties. That's it, 20,000. And interestingly, a lot of those own a number of dud properties, so it's not that good either. So you've actually got to do differently to what most people do if you want to get the results that most people don't get. Otherwise, you're going to get the results everyone else gets. So you shouldn't have the emotional hat on. So an investment-grade property to me is one that's in the right location. So let me say that location does 80% of the heavy lifting. And we spoke a bit about research before, but for investors, the research involves finding areas that are going to have strong capital growth. Because as we said before, capital growth is what's going to increase the value of your property. But interestingly, as the property goes up, the rent goes up as well. So the research is looking for areas that not just have done well in the past, because past performance doesn't always translate to the future. So I look for areas that have got economic growth, because when you've got economic growth, you get jobs growth. When you have jobs growth, people want to come in there. And when people come in there, they actually need to rent or they need to buy. And so we look for areas that are going to outperform because of economic growth. And we also look for the demographics. Now, this is not a judge of people, but I look for areas where people's wages, the disposable income is higher than average. The census actually gives us this information. It breaks down every postcode and shows you people's earnings, people's demographics. And I look for areas where disposable income increases more than the average for the state. Because if you think about it, Sally and Mark, what these people will have is more income. And they're not only going to buy smashed avocados and lattes and nice cars, they're going to buy houses and they're going to renovate them. So location does 80% of the heavy lifting. And then within that location, I look for the sort of property that's going to have owner-occupier appear, like we said. I'm going to look for a property that has a high land-to-asset ratio. It's the land underneath that goes up. We said it a moment ago. It's the location that pushes up the value of the property. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to buy a house. It could be a townhouse or it could be an apartment. But I want an apartment in those older blocks, those lovely blocks where there's 8, 10, 12. I'd rather own a twelfth of a block of land in Coogee, in Bondi, in Sydney, in St Kilda, in Melbourne, yeah, in the nice suburbs of our capital cities, than one hundredth or two hundredth under uh, one of those big towers there. So it's not how much land is the land to asset ratio. I like buying something below its intrinsic value. You're not paying a premium to developers or marketers so we don't buy new and off the plan. 
I like something with a twist, something a bit unique, something a bit special about it. And what I really like is it probably that I can add some value to over time, something with a bit of renovation potential, some, something that I can manufacture some capital growth, not just leave the market to do the heavy lifting. Yeah, that's definitely a good thing to think about. And the next mistake was paying over the odds. So can you walk us through that well, one? Again, with most new properties, you're actually paying above intrinsic value, which I said a moment ago, because there's too many fingers in the pie. All those glossy brochures that you see, all the full page ads in the Saturday papers, all the ads online, somebody's got to pay for that and the marketing and the, the, the display suites. So therefore, in general, I would be avoiding the new and off the plan properties because you're overpaying. And that's shown when they come on completion, have to get a valuation. And the majority of properties that were bought a couple of years ago, today when they are completed off the planned properties, the contract price is significantly more than the valuation and you've got to make up the difference. But the other thing is also a lot of investors are a bit too timid to make a lower offer on an established property as well. Again, partly the fear of missing out, as we said, uh, partly because in our culture in Australia, we're not as good at negotiating and they're dealing with... a professional negotiator on the other side. Estate agents are taught how to negotiate. They spend a lot of time on that. And so that's a learning fee that a lot of first-home buyers and investors have got. They're buying with their emotion and you're paying too much. And for many years, it's not just the price of the property. You've got a bigger mortgage. You've had too much stamp duty. So be very cautious about what you pay and do your research. Find out not what other properties are asking on the internet or in, in the papers. Find out what they've sold for. And again, that's where it's sometimes hard to get the updated research. That's where a buyer's agent will help you. And you've got to then compare like with like. In other words, is that other two-bedroom apartment that sold similar? Does it have a similar outlook? Does it have a similar size or similar facilities in it? So compare like with like. Another common mistake that property investors have is underestimating their running costs. How different is this from buying a home? Interestingly, it's very similar costs, Mark. But what a lot of investors are coming from is people who are rent vesting or buying an investment before they buy a home don't recognize that they've actually got to pay the rates and taxes and land tax, which is a cost that they don't necessarily have to pay if they own their own home. Now, there's a land tax threshold and each state's got a slightly different one. But there's also the maintenance, the owner's corporation, some taxation costs. So it can cause cash flow issues if you haven't budgeted for them. Yeah, there's always unexpected costs. Like I remember there was a storm in Brisbane and that ruined some shade sale on my property and I was like, going to have to replace it. So yeah, there's always these unexpected costs that come up. Now you can mitigate against some of those things. So you should insure yourself as well. And people don't always take out landlord insurance. Landlord insurance actually covers you for tenants leaving, doing damage, not paying the rent. And that's different to insurance of the building, the shell that's uh, covered for the storms that you were talking about before as well. And that's one of the things I like about residential real estate as an investment. You can actually minimize your risks because you can insure against a number of things for it. And another way of insuring yourself is by getting a good education so that you're not making mistakes. 
And I think the last point links in really well to the next common mistake, which is having no spare funds to use as a buffer for, you know, said emergency costs. So how much do you think should be put aside as, you know, spare or savings when looking at the total amount that you are budgeting when you're looking into buying it? That's a really good question, Sally, because how much buffer you need depends a bit upon your cash flow. So if you're in the sort of job where you're actually spending almost everything you're earning and you don't have a lot of spare money, uh, then you actually need a bigger buffer than somebody who can maybe work an extra shift or see another patient if they're a doctor or or do another operation or do something and get a bit of extra money if they suddenly need some more uh, or get another commission. So therefore, it depends a bit upon your spare cash flow at the end of the day. And it also depends upon how many investment properties you've got. But things always do crop up. There are vacancies, there are repairs. At other times, there were rising interest rates, which there isn't now. You need to set aside some money for a rainy day. And some people have a a credit card for that instead. I'm not sure that's a particularly good idea because that can end up being quite costly because you won't necessarily be able to pay it off at, at the end of the month. So it's financial discipline that's important. One of the things we haven't mentioned is in, in our chat today is that residential real estate investment is really a game of finance with some homes thrown in the middle. So what you need to do is get the right finance to allow you to buy the right property. And the right finance isn't necessarily the cheapest rate. It's actually one that gives you a level of flexibility. And you've got to have the finance to buy you time. Smart investors buy themselves time to ride the ups and downs of the cycle. We've been through a downturn in Sydney and Melbourne in particular. But if you didn't have to sell, and if you were able to ride that through, the market has now picked up again. And in 10 years time, the value of your property will have doubled, even though it went down 10, 15% over the last little while. So get the right finance to see you through the ups and downs so you're not caught out. Yeah, that's very wise words. So, okay, so to finish us off, Michael, another mistake that investors make is going solo. So I personally used a buyer's agent when I bought my first property. But on the other hand, someone I know who's pretty successful at property has chosen to do it all themselves and manages their own property and you know takes care of their tenants' needs. Uh, what is non-negotiable when it comes to what experts you should be using when buying an investment? Well, don't ever, ever, ever manage your own property. That is being stingy and you're going to get yourself in trouble because when everything works nicely, it's okay. But in fact, the legislation keeps changing and it's changing considerably to the favour of the tenant in Victoria and in New South Wales. And it's got to do with all sorts of things from are they allowed to let out part of their rooms on Airbnb or are other tenants allowed to put hooks on the wall or what happens if there's damage there? Let me give you a really good example. A couple of days ago, one of my own properties, the tenant complained that the heating wasn't working. And so our property manager got an air conditioning guy to go out and check the heating. And you know what happened? The tenant had closed the vent. (laughs) We were billed for $260 for the the call-out cost, which is fair. Now, who has to pay for that? Me, because I called them out, or my my, my property manager, or the tenant, because they didn't do it right. So 
you've got to understand what your rights and what your responsibilities are as a landlord and what you can claim back from the tenant and what you can't because the tribunals, BCAT and QCAT and uh, NCAT in, in the various states, are very much on the side of the tenant. And the reason for that is because there have been some slum landlords and people not looking after the tenants. So I'm suggesting you need some smart people because the property manager does a lot more than just collect rent. They keep up with the legislation and they, if things go wrong, they, they protect you. They make sure that you've got your insurance in place. They pay out of the rents, all your rates and taxes. So at the end of the year, you actually get one statement. It's not a job to be taken lightly. And so that's one of the non-negotiables in my mind. Trying to do it on your own, it's just too hard, especially when you're starting. So I think it goes right back to the beginning of formulating a strategy. Most investors don't even have a strategy. The strategy is I'm going to buy an investment property. The strategy is, oh, I like that property, and then I'm going to buy it. It's the other way around. You've actually got to understand why you're doing it. Is it for capital growth, or is it for cash flow, or is it for a combination of both? Uh, you've got to get your finance right. You've got to get your ownership structure right. You buy it in your own name. You buy it in joint names with your spouse, your partner, your life partner. You buy it in a family trust so you can pass it on to others. So all that has to happen upfront, a finance strategy, a wealth strategy. Sometimes you need to see a financial planner. So in my mind, to be a successful investor, you need more than the buyer's agent who's actually implementing the plan. You probably need more than the property strategist. You need somebody who can look after you holistically. Because if you don't, you're going to end up in that category that most investors are in, and they never get past their first or second property. So yes, it does cost to do this, but it's sharpening the saw before you cut down the tree. It's the planning that you do in other areas of your life or in business as well, because the initial cost up front is an investment. If you don't do that, it can be very, very costly. So I've found getting professional advice isn't expensive. To me, it's an investment. There's um, all sorts of other expertise you, you can have as well or need as well. And it's also really hard then to understand who to believe. That's the big, big trouble at the moment because property advice, investment advice is not regulated. It is for financial planning, it is for insurance, it's for stocks. But while a lot of people have a license to sell real estate, to be a buyer's agent, you don't need a license to give property investment advice. Um, and, and so therefore, a lot of people get taken by scammers, by spruikers who've got a vested interest who are not on your side. So that's another learning fee. I got eaten by a shark learning fee where if you don't pay your advisors, you're the product, you're not the client. Yeah, that's a great point. That's very, very scary thought. But yeah, again, it just shows you need to do your research and, and make sure that who you're working with is legitimate and reputable. Sure. So how do you find out? Well, I mean, there's lots of uh, Google searches now, and that's really easy to do as well. There are people who join professional organizations, and PIPA, the Property Investment Professionals Association of Australia, which in fact we were founding members of many, many years ago, you'll find people with professional qualifications at QPIA that are professionally qualified property advisors. And you've got to find somebody who's independent. And the other thing is you've got to find somebody who is, so they don't have a stock list to, to sell you, but also who, as I said a moment ago, has a more holistic approach. And if you live in Sydney, you may not be able to afford Sydney. So if you've got a $500,000 budget in Sydney, 
all you could buy is a double garage, while in Brisbane, you could actually buy a home. So you should be able to speak to somebody who isn't just going to talk about their own state. And that's why going directly to a buyer's agent, in my mind, isn't enough, because they're not going to be able to tell you buy in other states. So people in Perth, where the market is still flat, probably shouldn't be buying there, but they should be speaking to somebody who says, you know what, the Brisbane market actually is uh, rising. It actually hasn't dropped as much, or Sydney and Melbourne is a great counter-cyclical opportunity. So yes, Sally, as you said, be really, really careful who you listen to. Yeah, and as an as a extra note, I found personally um, going to the property chat forums was great because you can actually hear from people who have used buyers agents or mortgage brokers in specific areas that they might not live in and they will give you like usually a pretty honest account of like what they thought of them and so I think that's also a good resource. Definitely. Cool. Well, thank you so much for that, Michael. I feel like I um, have learned a lot and I wish I could go back in time now and rebuy my first property so I wouldn't have made some of these mistakes. The final point I guess I'd like to make is property is very forgiving. So yes, you did make mistakes, but you are in the market and the market moved up and the market's moved down. But when you look back in 10 years time, you're going to be so thankful, just like I am, that I made that $18,000 investment. I took a 30-year mortgage for $18,000 and I went halves with my parents because I had no idea how was it we were ever going to pay it off. <laughs> yeah, $12. Was that $12 a week, you said, in rent? $12 a week rent. Oh, wow. my God. And that was good. <laughs> uh, but remember, in those days, the family car was the Holden Kingswood <laughs> before the Commodore, and that cost $2,000. Oh, wow. What a throwback. Times have really changed. Again, that's the power of owning income-producing capital growth assets. So does that mean that houses are going to be like $100 million in 40 years' time? Well, remember, though, in those days, a car cost $2,000. Today, the equivalent would cost uh, $35,000, $40,000. But that's one of the problems in Australia, Sally. So not all over the world. And in fact, not all over Australia. You could buy in regional Australia, you can buy whole acres for what it would cost you to buy a property in in Sydney or, or Melbourne. But it's an issue living in the best country in the world at the best time in history in seaside, in bayside, in water suburbs or cities. So remember, we live in four capital cities that are all on the shore that we've got a queue of people wanting to come to Australia. When my parents migrated in 1956, when I was only three, Australia paid immigrants to come here. They encouraged them to come here because people didn't want to come. Now we have more people wanting to come than we can place. And they're coming with jobs. They're coming to form families. So it's the strong population growth. Remember, we're growing faster than any other developed nation. We're growing at about 1.6% per annum. And by 2030, our population is going to go from 25 million that we are now to 30 million. We're going to have all those extra people wanting to live in much the same sort of place. And they're going to be able to afford to because they're going to have jobs. That's what's going to push up the value of properties in Australia, Sally. Wow, first world problems, am I right? Exactly right. But that is it <laughs> because there's a lot of countries where there's an undersupply of properties. I visited Mexico a couple of years ago. The whole population of Australia, 25 million people in Mexico City, there was a huge undersupply of properties, but property values didn't go up because people couldn't afford it. Go and look at Japan where there's very wealthy people but an ageing demographic and not new 
lot of new people coming in. And so therefore what happens is there's been deflating and property values and asset values have gone down for a long time. So you need a combination of both those things, population growth and the wealth of the nation. And that's what's going to underpin property values in Australia in the long term. That's great. Thank you so much for that, Michael. Thanks for your time today. And um, thanks for everything. My pleasure. Okay, Sally. I'm ready to invest. You've got your mistakes for first home buyers covered. Now you've got them covered for investors. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you're ready? Yes. I feel like I'll still manage to make a couple of mistakes along the way. But also, can you lend me some money? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for joining us on this wacky journey once again, everyone. If you enjoyed it, feel free to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. As always, leave us a review and uh, make sure to follow us uh, on Instagram at Pocket Money Podcast. Yeah, let's be pals. Yeah. Internet pals. The best kind of friends, internet friends. <laughs> <laughs> Till next time. Thanks for listening to Pocket Money from Finder. Head over to finder.com.au slash podcast for the show notes for this episode. The Finder podcast is intended to provide you with tips, tools, and strategies that will help you make better decisions. Although we're licensed and authorized, we don't provide financial advice. So please consider your own situation or get advice before making any decisions based on anything in our show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.